0: Welcome to the Voice of Retail Special Commerce next bonus episode, part two. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, and this podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. On this episode, I talk with Joe Magaba, CEO of Innovative Mattress Brand and manufacturer Purple. With decades of senior-level dot-com experience, with the likes of Expedia and American Eagle behind him, Joe is helping Purple break through the huge betting category. Next, veteran retail and consumer analyst Ken Kassar, principal of Kassar Co., strategy and analytics consultant, joins me and gives us an overview, a top-line analysis of recent U.S. online retail and consumer data and helps us understand shopping trends during the COVID era. First, let's hear from Joe from Purple. Joe, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Doing great, Michael. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining me. Take a bit of time to uh, chit and chatting in advance of Commerce Next coming up at the end of uh, at the end of July. Why don't we jump right in? Tell us a bit about yourself, uh, the background, your personal background, and and current role, and all about Purple. No, I appreciate
1: that. I um as a young child, I had one goal in life and it was to someday sell mattresses. And I can say <laughs> I, I have achieved that goal now. Take the With rest of the day off, Joe. Take, exactly, it, take the rest of exactly, the day off. Exactly. You know, aim low. Hey, although there's, you know, for the humor, it is part of the opportunity, and that's uh mm. as, as most consumers think about buying a mattress, it doesn't rank up high in, in pleasurable shopping experiences. And uh, you know, there are there are history of mattress stores ranking up there, um, just, you know, slightly above, fortunately above, but slightly above used car salesmanships. Um, so it, you know, it, it's, it isn't a category that, um, you know, genuinely uh, people think of as of exciting retail, but it's, uh, you know, it, it is a very important part of all our lives. So yeah, backing up a little. So I, uh, hi, I'm uh, the CEO of Purple Innovation. I uh, joined the company uh, just closing in on two years ago now, um, although uh, Purple itself uh, has actually been around in some form or another for, uh, for nearly 30 years now. Uh, started really uh, with a lot of technology and invention on uh, on gels and, uh, and and a variety of cushioning cushioning applications, um, starting with uh, actually wheelchair pads and some medical bed applications. Uh, but before I get into purple, I uh, I've been in in e commerce since uh, before the name e commerce was uh, was used. Started actually on the technology side of the house uh, in the very early nineties, and have. Uh, through a series of uh, of internet disruptors, and and even uh, consulting and software companies have ridden this internet wave since uh, since the day that Netscape launched. So, passion of mine, and uh, and something that. Uh Don't know what I would have done if it weren't for that. So, most recently, some of the bigger jobs American Eagle Outfitters was a chief digital officer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before that, I uh, I ran the uh, US business for Expedia, ran Expedia.com to uh, two of the larger companies I've worked with. Um, So, yeah. yeah. and, uh, and even American Eagle, um, just given mm-hmm. given their customer base, which is obviously uh, younger than a, a lot of retail. We really pushed hard, and we're we're very early adopters in a lot of what's become um, best practices in omnichannel retail. You know, really integrating the customer cross channel. So, but I joined Purple a couple years ago, and uh, you know, this was. A little bit of a different play, Purple, there were a number of bed-in-a-box type companies, uh, Mm -hmm. but what was interesting with most of them is at their core, they were really value and convenience plays, which is a lot of where internet disruption happens. It was how can we find a way to do something that on the surface seemed preposterous, you know, ship a mattress through the mail so that you don't have to go into a store and eliminate the need to go into the store at all. And, oh, by the way, if you cut out the middleman, then you likely have some savings and we can get you a, a mattress uh, uh, you know, at a lower price. And that, that's really what a lot of the bed in the box promise was. We, we were a little different. We're actually a manufacturer built on real. Technology and our biggest source of disruption isn't really about the internet at all, it's about the bed. So, while I'd say everyone else was looking for a better way to buy a bed, our entire mission was to create a better bed. It's interesting that there's been very little advancement in this category for decades. Um, memory foam, which became a significant change in thinking about what a mattress could feel like and how it could perform, was launched over 30. Thirty years ago, um, yeah, adjustable air mattresses, uh, where you can inflate or deflate a, a, an air bladder inside the mattress.
0: Again, a over, number kind of e- innovation, exactly. you know, that, those and kind of customizable controls Yeah.
1: over thirty years ago. So there really just there hasn't been any any mainstream advancement. What has happened is just costs have come down, and it's a very value driven category. Um, but uh, we, we have technology that is very different. It's not memory foam. It's not traditional materials where we're able to accomplish some of the things you really want in a bed, which is really even weight distribution and support across your pressure points, but do it in a way that has very high airflow and energy dissipation, which means you just don't get hot as you're sleeping in the middle of the night. And it's things memory foam can't do. So all the benefits without any of the downsides, and to do that, we are a manufacturer. We have now over 1100 employees. We are domestic. We're actually just signing our, our third manufacturing facility right now, so we'll have you know well over a million square feet of warehousing and manufacturing space. And we make this we have over 100 patents issued. We, we make something fundamentally different, we make it ourselves, and it, it is a very disruptive product. The internet allowed us to scale much, much faster than we would have 30 years ago um, and has allowed us to get access and reach to the customer and help educate. But uh, it, you know, at our core, it's really all about the product.
0: It's it's been a. I think it's actually a really interesting category because there's been in some ways a fair bit of disruption. In some ways, just a lot of noise. But there's no question a lot more people paying attention to the category. You know, the ownership of of sleep from the as you say from the box mattresses. And and I actually had the opportunity to interview um, uh, the founder of Eight Sleep, which is introducing technology to sleep, kind of a different approach. So I actually find it a pretty interesting category. And as you said, you know, from the beginning, everyone it's something everyone's buying, and it was kind of a sleepy excuse the pun, kind of category for for many years. Huge, but uh, it it was really interesting. Now you make, I was watching some of your videos. They reminded me of kind of a, a dollar shave club. They're a pile of fun. Uh, on the site. And, and, and you're making those products in uh, in Utah, or you, you mentioned you had a couple of places you were manufacturing them, right? Yeah. R- r-
1: right now, our manufacturing facilities are in Utah, where uh, we announced that we're opening another very large facility in the southeast, um, inked in the, uh, and and close to closing. So we haven't announced mm-hmm. exactly uh, where yet, but uh, it's imminent. And, uh, you know, and that's just domestic. Um, I mean, we're still, you know, we're, I mean, we, d- we did uh, you know, 428 million in net revenue last year. Um, this year, we had given guidance earlier in the year pre-COVID, um, you know, which was uh, you know around 600 million. Um, we uh, we hmm. pulled back that guidance as a, we're a public company. We had pulled back that guidance as. A, as everyone did with COVID. But we have been giving monthly results, which uh, have been fairly extraordinary for us. So I mean, we're, you know, we're a pretty significant player growing pretty quickly. But what's amazing is it's just mattresses alone domestically as a $16 billion category.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a a mammoth category. So we're,
1: you know, despite all this success we're having, we're still really, you know, less than 4% of the category. So we're, we're an early player, you know, we're, we're, it's interesting, we're moving from the entrepreneurial phase of trying to create a real company to now the scale phase of how do we actually become a significant player with significant share, which is just an interesting shift in, in really how you do everything in a company. Um, but we're still relatively small.
0: Let me pick up on the segue, you talked about um... You know, the beginning of the years as the COVID crisis began, pulled back some guidance. And so, my next question—the one I'm asking everyone—is based on what you've been, what you've learned, what you've experienced, uh, how you are thinking ahead in in what is the COVID era. It's not—it's uh, not months; it's probably years by the time, in one way, shape, or form, this all winds up. What's your advice, and how are you thinking uh, to the retailers? Two stops and one start, or sorry, two starts and one stop. Uh, in other words, start doing these two things and stop doing this. And again, based on, you know, the past, you know, 14, 18 weeks and what you anticipate uh, retail will be like uh, in the next you know, 18, 24 months.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I mean, my crystal balls is no better than anyone else's. It seems like every time we think we've got this figured out, something else changes. We've got our own brick and mortar showrooms in mm-hmm. California, which uh, as of last night, uh, one of them was shut down. The whole mall was closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so here we go again. Yeah. I, I'd say a, a few things. One, I think when there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of change and consumer confusion, partner confusion, employee confusion, I think the first thing you got to start doing is whatever level you're communicating, you got to ramp it up. I mean, there's never a time that it's more important to over-communicate. And and that's up and down the line. I mean, what and how you're saying to your customers, a lot of if you do have a business that has demand right now, you're likely being pressured. I mean, everyone's planning went out the window, whether mm. it's buys or, or manufacturing or inventory or, or demand planning. It, it all changed. I think being very, very transparent with your customers and managing expectations and what's going on as a company and your employees and your channel partners and, and up and down the line, I, I just... I think you can't communicate enough right now, which, by the way, creates opportunity to foster loyalty and brand connection and authenticity. Right. There's a lot of good that right comes on. from it, even if what you have to say may not be what people want to hear. Um, but uh, but I, I think building some, uh, some credibility that... Uh, You know, you you say what you do, you do what you say, and everyone knows what's going on. It's really critical right now. So that would be my first start. Um, My second is um, online businesses have done very well in general because of COVID. Um, As consumers have been unable or unwilling to get to brick-and-mortar stores during this time period, Um, There's actually been – there's a lot of discussion about this, but there's a lot of unlock and discretionary spend. If you're not taking your vacations, you're not traveling, you're not doing expensive out-of-the-home entertainment and sporting events and shows and other things and even even dining out – You may be doing more takeout, but you're not dining out the way you were. Um, So there's actually more discretionary spend. And for home-related categories, I mean, there's significant increase in focus on home. So there's been this big, almost seismic shift online in in general and and very much in certain categories, um, which, Yeah, the temptation would be just do more of the same. I I actually, my other start is, I I don't think there's ever been a better time to rethink what e-commerce looks like. Mm -hmm. Because the challenge is, while there's more demand online, I think in an omnichannel world, it's easy to forget how important the role of brick and mortar is. And, uh, you know, especially if you're selling physical goods, if brick and mortar is less part of the consumer's consideration and buying cycle, how do you rethink replicating or coming up with uh, with proxies for that online um, is going to become more and more important? And I, I think you've really got to just online e-commerce has become kind of boilerplate. Everyone, everyone looks the same. Everyone follows the same templates. Everyone follows the same design patterns. And I'm not sure that makes sense in a world, especially as you get into considered purchases or, uh, or, you know more physical goods that that just works um, mm-hmm. in a world that you've you have far less access to brick and mortar. So that w- that would be my other start for for a stop. Um, I you know this is this is you know maybe a little bit of a cop out, but uh I I'd say stop thinking that brick and mortar is is dying. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think in the same way COVID nineteen has likely significantly accelerated some shifts online i think it's also going to significantly accelerate the role of brick and mortar and and how brick and mortar uh, what what great brick and mortar looks like i'm very bullish on brick and mortar for a very long period of time. I I think consumers want to engage with human beings and engage with the social aspects of brick and mortar and touch and feel and experience product and expertise around it. Um, But I think increasingly it's going to be less transactional and more experiential, which we've been hearing for years. It's just now more than ever, I I think uh, that role and how you think about really putting the customer through the the physical journey, um, especially cleanliness and safety and Mm -hmm. focusing on the customer experience. It's, I mean, a lot of things that used to be sort of like, gee, that'd be nice are now suddenly requirements.
0: They're the baseline now
1: and yeah. uh I, you know it's so it's going to change but I, I think it's worth investment and i think to just write it off would also be a mistake all
0: right last uh, last question you are on the stage speaking it's commerce uh, next and uh, in the virtual summit what are you going to be talking about when, i are you uh, on a panel or are you keynoting what are you doing
1: <laughs> i am not on a panel I, I i guess they'd call it a keynote i'm not i'm not entirely sure in a all virtual <laughs> session what a keynote is but i guess it means i i don't have to share the screen with anyone else on the screen um, that's right that, that's right. real estate. All you get, the get, the, you get real to real stare estate. at me, and that's it. Um, <laughs> a, a keynote, I suppose. And uh, yeah, we're. Um, I mean, these are short, quick sessions, but we're really going to talk about just the incredible journey Purple has gone through, both you know from inception five years ago to where we are today, um, as well as how we've navigated through COVID and some of the opportunities that's created for us, um, mm-hmm. including giving back, a right, creation of relief beds and. Uh, mm-hmm and face masks and so forth um you know what that has has really resulted for our company so uh should be a a fun little view into the world of uh, next generation mattress manufacturing
0: fantastic well well joe thanks for joining me on the voice of retail I look forward to uh, to watching you on the big screen so to speak uh, July 28th 29th i do thank you for being and joining me on the voice of retail and wish you have a uh, good and safe uh, week. And and, uh, again, looking forward to see you at uh, Commerce Next in July.
1: Appreciate your time, Michael. Thanks
0: so much for having me. Ken, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today?
2: I'm very well, Michael. Thank you very much for having me.
0: You know, you and I have crossed paths literally over decades, but I don't think we've ever had the chance to really speak together. So this is a real treat for me. uh, And Thanks to our friends at, uh, at Commerce Next brought us together, but uh, we'll get you back on the podcast a little later, actually, uh, in the summer and get, go into more depth for now. Why don't you start out with telling us a bit about yourself, your background and your current role?
2: All right. So uh, I've been in the retail industry now for about 25 years. uh, I began my career as a retail industry analyst for a couple of firms that are no longer with us. One was a Northeastern department store chain. The other was a record club, 11 CDs for the price of one. Uh, and um and uh and then i spent I uh, spent some time as an industry analyst for a company called Jupiter Research, where we really looked at the impact of internet on uh the world. I focused on retail um and then I spent uh the fifteen years after that at uh, various measurement firms, uh, principally Nielsen. I spent ten years there, uh, and then at a company called Slice, um, where we were measuring what people were doing online, uh, and, uh, and really trying to unpack uh, the, the evolving behavior that we were that we were seeing um, by trying to measure it, which which I always felt was very important. Uh, there, there was a the, in the online space. There's always sort of been a, a shortage of data to understand what's happening, and I've always been excited as I've been able to kind of bring open new ways to see the consumer and what the consumer is doing.
0: And what what are you doing now? You're on your own, you're not with a... What do you do today?
2: Yeah, I started up my own uh, consultancy in May uh, called Casarco Strategy and Analytics. And um, and we do two things. Uh, First, uh, we do consulting projects for retailers, brands, technology providers, and data providers to the retail industry. Um, And we also bring to market non-traditional forms of measurement. Uh, After having worked uh, for a a while with kind of the traditional ways that the consumer was measured, um, I, uh, I, I've really been kind of consumed over the past six or so years with finding um, new ways to do that, new ways to understand uh, the consumer and what and uh, and what the consumer is doing. Um, and so, uh, so at Casarco, uh, we're working with a variety of firms in order to take their data, productize it, bring it to retailers in a way that will be uh, relevant and hopefully actionable to them.
0: Well, you're speaking uh, coming up next week, coming up. Very- very soon at uh, Commerce Next. Now, for my other interviews, I've been asking them two starts and one stop, uh, including on, on this episode. But for us, I think I'm going to ask you something different. And and you're presenting lots of data, as, as we would expect. So can you give me a kind of a high-level observations or insights that you've seen of what retail looks like uh, so far in the, in the COVID era, and uh, perhaps how you think any of those might uh, reverberate as we kind of walk through whatever, whatever the COVID era looks like, uh, you know, 12, 14, 18, 24 months, who knows. But g- give us a top line uh, summary of, of
2: what you've observed. All right. That sounds good. And, um, yeah, and I have been pouring through a lot of data over the uh, over the past uh, over the past few weeks. Um, and um, and there is uh, and there really is some very good data out there. In the United States, the U.S. Census Bureau puts out monthly trade um, estimates um, that allow us to understand uh, what consumers are buying and the types of retailers they're buying from. Um, uh, we, uh, I'm also partnered with a company uh, called Affinity Solutions that has 90 million credit cards uh, where they're able to track all spending by consumers on that. And so we've been diving deep into that data and working with commerce next we also ran a survey of a thousand of a thousand consumers uh, uh, really trying to understand their attitudes and their motivations around shopping and that was a survey in partnership with Bizrate. so we have three really meaty sets of data that i think will collectively give us a, a kind of an interesting view into what the uh, what the consumer is up to today and what uh, and what she's thinking Take us through it. What are the top
0: uh, top observations that uh, you've been working? You know, you've been working hard trying to take what you do best, which is take a massive amount of data and kind of draw some insights from it that, that don't send us down some kind of rabbit hole that, that actually bring uh, some idea to the listeners and to retailers.
2: The so first of all, you know, the the, the finding that had really kind of struck me um, is that. Despite a lot of bleak news um, that uh, that we've been picking up, really since March, um, when um, uh, at least in the United States uh, we really were kind of compelled to shut down the economy, the um, the news has been getting significantly better, and uh, and I believe that there is money that is up for grabs. Between March and May in um, the United States, um, we saw about $104 billion in retail spending um, basically disappear. The, uh, there were some categories where spending dropped significantly. We saw a drop over that three-month period, $44 billion in spending on gas, $90 billion in spending at restaurants, $28 billion in non-essential retail. We also saw some increases. Uh, we were spending a lot more um, on home-related items and in grocery stores as well. But that hit was a very, very significant one. However, when we fast forward to June, June 2020 retail spending was basically flat to June 2019. And that was a significant improvement from what we saw in March and especially what we saw in April. Um, That's become a little bit lost in the mix because a lot of the – commentary that we've seen about the trade numbers that have come out have been focused on month-to-month comparison. So April relative to March, May relative to June. But when we compare June to last June, we see a very different story. And I think it gives us some, uh, some cause for optimism.
0: You know, at the, at the high level, you look at those numbers, and I know the media, and all of us as well, you know, we think about our colleagues at retailers who've gone into protection, and that kind of takes over the headlines. But I, I think what you're reflecting is is what I've called this, this giant circuit breaker on consumer habits. Like they're just, they're, they're back to spending, but they're not spending in, in the way they were before.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and th- there are certain categories, uh, apparel, for example, um, more than any other category has been decimated. Um, apparel retail, apparel and footwear retailers in the U.S. lost $49 billion in sales between, uh, March and June. And, um, and unfortunately, given the seasonal nature of the apparel business, some of that yeah. is revenue that's just not going to come back. Um, no. but we're also finding that there's pent up demand in some of those categories. So in the survey that Commerce Next and BizRate ran, um, by the way, this was in the first week of July 2020, we asked consumers about categories that they had not then buying because they weren't able to go to stores um, that they that they're eager to get back to really trying to get at pent up demand, and um, and the top category cited was apparel by thirty seven percent of mm-hmm. respondents, um, furniture and home improvement was cited by twenty eight percent, health and beauty. More on the beauty side, I'm guessing, yeah. um, uh, was uh, was the third category with the most pent up demand. Um, so the uh, so consumers have dollars that they're ready to spend; they're waiting for the uh, for the right opportunity. The uh, the trick though is that we know that many retailers are becoming very very conservative with the money that they have for good reason the uh they're trying to preserve their capital they're trying to survive until the end of the pandemic the uh the trick though is that with these dollars that are available companies retailers that aren't spending uh on marketing that aren't making consumers aware of the fact that they're still there that they have compelling propositions are probably losing opportunities to retailers and and we think that there that that it really is fairly important for retailers that they um that they maybe become a bit less conservative than they have been and uh, maybe a little more optimistic than they are
0: you bring up a couple of interesting points i mean back to the apparel category it's it's even more nuanced even within that category right such a broad category everything from from casual to formal and they'll be affected differently um as our lives change right so how many people are going back to work versus working at home and uh you know these these things are just going to impact different um uh, different categories differently, even within them, and that last point's interesting. You know, around around retailers being conservative, I, I talked to many who were focused, particularly in the early days um, of the COVID crisis, on on liquidity. You know, let's we don't know what's coming, so let's just start banking dollars. And it's interesting you're saying that there's probably, as you say, there's money on the table, discretionary income on the table to be had, and uh, the, how to calibrate, how to spend to go after that money. in the appropriate ways right that's interesting absolutely what have you what have you learned about online we've seen this massive shift to uh to online this kind of you know great acceleration of of people either because they had to or because they felt like they wanted to or they tried it and wow this really works well this this move to e-commerce certainly not a new trend Uh, it's been happening for the our entire careers basically since the late 90s but did you see one of the questions outstanding is the the water line went high in terms of demand but the thinking is as stores open that water line is going to recede probably not to where it was before what's your data telling you
2: Yeah the and, that, and I think I think that is really one of the most important questions that retailers have to wrestle with right now. The uh, We've seen many retailers scramble to uh, to develop certain types of e-commerce functionality like curbside pickup or online app ordering, for example. In many cases, they haven't made sustained or sustainable investments um, that, uh, that, that will get them through anything other than a crisis. Our data is showing us that, that the move toward online is it uh, has been a strong one. Um, looking at the US, trade, uh, U.S. Census Bureau trade data, when we look at May and June uh, and April comparisons to the previous year, um, online-only retailers, uh, so folks like Amazon and Wayfair, um, their sales were up 22 23%, depending upon the month that you look at and um and that goes through june june sales were up 22% over june 2019 in the online category again looking at online only retailers the uh, there's been a little bit of press lately in the us about um the fact that the online only sales numbers had dropped by a Percent and a half from May, and folks had started to believe that we were seeing the be- the uh, the beginning of the retreat um, back to stores. But that really is not the case. The reason we saw that is because there's typically a drop off from May to June in um, in consumer spending, and in fact, the uh, the share of spending to online increased uh, during June. One of the survey questions that we had asked about in the commerce next biz rate survey um, was for consumers that had shopped online uh, and uh, and specifically whose habits had changed that their, their online shopping habits had changed during the covid period we uh fifty three percent of the folks that we surveyed really said that they, that that covid caused no impact on their levels of spending and how much they're spending but 38% of people told us that they um that they spent more um and that that was a net positive experience. Uh, so those are hmm. positive online experiences. Only 9% of people in that survey said that they were compelled to shop more online during COVID. Um, and that was a negative experience. So um, despite some of the bumps in the road that retailers have experienced as they've tried to catch up with what's necessary, uh, it seems to have had a uh it seems to have had a very positive impact. And then the other part of that is the store part of the equation and um, and we're seeing that as we get farther into covid and as we understand the transmission of the uh, of covid we are starting to see consumers becoming more comfortable going into stores uh, in fact uh, in the last read that we had and this is through the um, Uh, the Commerce Next Biz Rate Survey, 54% of consumers said that they were either very or somewhat comfortable in store. 18% were very. So there's still a degree of comfort Despite the fact that consumers are getting more comfortable uh, going into stores, um, and um, and so uh, at least through the duration of COVID, um, it seems likely to us that the levels of online spending that we're that we're seeing are going to um, are, are 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 not going to subside.
0: Well, uh, you know, you've given us such a great quick overview and an introduction. You'll be on the stage, uh, the virtual stage, of course, uh, next week. Um, and with a lot more data, I'm sure, to present. So this has been a great kind of top-level introduction. And uh, I know I'm keen on tuning in on the 28th and 29th. Which, uh, which day and what, what time are you on uh, next week?
2: I'll be on the, uh, the afternoon uh, of uh, Tuesday, the, uh, the 28th. Um, around uh, one thirty or so, I believe, um, and uh, this this will be fun. Uh, I am tackling uh, the uh, the consumer with the da- all the data that we have from the consumer, and then uh, Sulchurita Mopuru uh, from uh, oh, I'm sorry, Kodali. <laughs> I uh, yeah. I uh, just went back ten years in time. I think uh, Sulchurita Solch- yeah. uh, will um, be looking at the uh, the perspective from uh, from merchants. So it'll be a good uh, data research driven one two punch. We hope.
0: Well, it's a great uh, dynamic duo. Sucharita has been on the podcast several times, and uh, thank you for being on this podcast. We'll get you back on a little later for a longer interview now just last question if folks want to learn more about you or your the work you do where do they go uh
2: at this point they should drop an email to ken at casarco.com uh we will have a website uh, that is in process right now that if all goes well will be up and running by next week
0: right at the moment well listen ken thanks for being on the voice of retail really appreciate your time and and again looking forward to seeing a longer presentation and and the richer data next week okay thanks a lot michael Thanks to Joe and Ken for being my guests on this special bonus episode. Be sure and visit CommerceNext.com and register for commerce next virtual summit taking place on July 28th. And you'll hear more from both of these great speakers. Tune in each and every week. As I interview the most interesting people in retail, you can subscribe to the voice of retail on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform. Please rate and review and be sure and recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.emmyleblanc.co.com or of course on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a safe week.